this room together uh, where we've never worshiped before. Uh, but to be in this place that we've spent a lot of time preparing and praying over and had envisioned such a gathering for a long time. So it's thank you for being here. It's so good to have all of you here, whether you're in person or on, on uh, the, the screen, but just want to really tell you how much this means to me. Um, you know, as we uh, step into this, uh, I was thinking about uh, this survey, this Swedish uh, psychologist named Ola Svensson, perfect Swedish name, I think, uh, did a survey a number of years ago where he asked American college students and also Swedish graduate students how they would rate themselves compared to other drivers. And this is what he found out. He said American college students think that uh, 88% of them say they are above average compared to other drivers. 73% of Swedish students say they are above average compared to other drivers. And, you know, this is kind of consistent with other surveys that have been done. There was a survey done years ago of uh, college professors that showed that 90% of college professors think they are above average teachers. Uh, and, and that um, of American high school students, uh, they, they interviewed 800,000 American high school students and asked them about their social skills, and only 1% said they had below average social skills. <laughs> See, this is something called, um, it's been called illusory superiority, or better known as the Lake Wobegon effect. Now, see, Lake Wobegon was a radio show for a number of years uh, that was about a fictional community in Minnesota. And the tagline for this community is Lake Wobegon, a place where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. You know, in the same way, I think... uh, we all think of ourselves as above average when it comes to compassion, when it comes to ability to love other people. And yet, you know, like these driving st- statistics, it's impossible that 88% of the people are above average. <laughs> um, and the, actually, the, the world would tell the church that maybe that stat is off in our perception, that maybe we actually are not as high quality with regard to compassion and love as we would evaluate ourselves. And so this fall, we've been working through the gospel accounts and all these kind of vignettes, these snapshots of Jesus and his incredible, it's his breathtaking compassion toward people. And we're trying to learn from Jesus, how do we become people ourselves of compassion? So today we're going to look at this account and all of my points begin with D. In fact, there are two D's in every one of them. So uh, we're going to look this morning first at two delays and then two daughters and then two defilements. So let's look at this together. Two delays. Now, this, this passage, in a lot of ways, is all about delays. It's all about interruptions. Jesus is on the way someplace else, and this man, Jairus, comes and interrupts him on his way. This man is described as a synagogue ruler, and he does something that no self-respecting Jewish man at the time, especially one who's this high and elevated in the community, would ever do. He runs. He's desperate. He shows emotion. This was completely out of character for men in Jewish society. You don't do this this way. And Jairus comes, and yet he is begging Jesus, please come. Please come look at my daughter. Please come heal her. And and Jesus agrees. And you can picture Jairus in that moment. Sigh of relief. Jesus is going to come with me. 
He's coming to my house. He's going to come look at my little girl. And yet again, there's an interruption. Right? This, this unnamed woman comes up in the crowd and touches Jesus, and Jesus stops. And not only does Jesus stop, Jesus stops for a while. He has a conversation with this woman. And, you know, we, we know that from this passage, the, it says the disciples were irritated when Jesus was like, hey, who touched me? They're like, the whole crowd is around you. What do you mean, who touched me? But I, I imagine, I mean, think, think about this. I mean, if the disciples are irritated, how was Jairus feeling on the inside? I, I bet he was freaking out on the inside. Like, you don't understand. This is an emergency. You know, if you think about if, if these two families came into the emergency room at the same time, and Jesus is the, the doctor on duty, and he goes and takes care of the woman first who has a chronic condition that's been going on for 12 years and ignores the girl who's dying, that Jesus, that physician would be sued for medical malpractice, right? I mean, come on, Jesus. That's chronic. This is emergency. Don't you see? I mean, Jesus seems to like be all out of whack here on his priorities. And he would be definitely sued for medical malpractice. Because this woman, it's, we, we can take care of that anytime. We can come back later. We'll, we'll be back in an hour. You know, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's not in a hurry. You know, I, the disciples must be thinking, what are you doing? I mean, don't you understand the situation? Hurry or it's going to be too late. And then, of course, when Jesus will not be hurried, Jairus' worst fears come to be. And he gets a message from home. It is too late. She's gone. Can't imagine what that was like for him. And then Jesus turns to him and just says simply, trust me. Hang in. Don't go anywhere. You know, every culture has a different sense of time. If you go to northern Europe and Germany, right, the trains all run on time. Switzerland, what are they known for? They're watches, right? They're known for things are on time. I've spent a good bit of time, though, in Central America, and things happen when they happen. And, you know, this is more important than whatever this is in Central America. You know, no matter what your background is, I think that God's sense of timing always confounds us. I mean, no matter your culture, it always seems like we're people who are on Swiss time and Jesus is on Central American time. He's not in a hurry. And it drives me crazy. Anybody else? Right? Um, in 1983, in October 1983, a truck loaded with explosives in Beirut, Lebanon, drove into a marine compound and exploded. And it killed 220 Marines and 18 sailors and three soldiers. And it was the single deadliest attack, single deadliest loss of life in one day since Iwo Jima for the armed forces. Now, my cousin David was stationed there. My co first cousin David's career Marine was stationed in that barracks and for some reason just happened to be called out that evening. So he just happened to not be there. Now, this was such a big deal in David's life, right? In his life, he was like, wow, that interruption 
that disruption, which he was annoyed at at the time, ended up being something that saved his life, very likely. Lost a lot of friends in that. And yet, you know, I don't know about you, but often for me, I, I can't trace, I can't connect the dots. I can't figure out why. Why, why this now? Why this interruption? Why, why this delay? Why is it like this? You know, but I, I love this scene because it helps me understand what God is up to in his timing. It helps me to see this. Look, look what we learn about the delays of Jesus. See, God is not saying in this scene, he's like, um, I, I won't be hurried even though I love you. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying, I won't be hurried because I love you. I won't be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to get on German time when I'm on Costa Rican time, you're going to automatically think that I don't love you anymore. You're going to automatically interpret my delays as my abandonment. It's precisely because of Jesus' delay that both Jairus and the woman get more than they bargained for in a good way in this passage. Let's take a look. So Jairus, what does he get? You know, what does he get more than he bargained for? He was banking on Jesus for the healing of his daughter, and instead he saw a resurrection from the dead. You know, he, Jesus invites him into a test of his faith that doesn't last for 15 minutes, not just from the time when he asks Jesus and we get back to my house. Jesus actually engages his faith on a level that he had never anticipated was going to happen that day. He gets way more than he bargained for. He is one of the first people, he's the first person who really sees, he and his wife, see a resurrection from the dead. This is before Lazarus. This is an incredible moment. And, and then what about, uh, what about the woman? I mean, she's probably, let's, let's think about her. She's probably a superstitious person, probably one of those people who has like a, a lucky rabbit's foot or a coin in her pocket. Uh, sort of thinks, if I just touch him, something magical will happen. Uh, and what does she want? She wanted to be able to touch and run, right? She wanted physical contact and healing and disappear. She wanted to just evaporate into the crowd. But, you know, Jesus wouldn't have it. He's not just satisfied with her healing. He wants her publicly declared clean. He wants for all the people to see. He wants to engage her faith. He wants a conversation. You know, again, as far as the disciples and, and Jairus are concerned, this is medical malpractice. Jesus has completely lost his mind. It's completely irrational what he's doing. But look, it's the same for Jesus. You know, healing, raising from the dead. Are either of those a harder thing for Jesus? We see in this passage, not at all. Both are the same for him. You know, it, it seemed to Jairus and disciples, Jesus is delaying for no good reason. And that may seem like the same for you right now. I mean, all of us are walking through, like slugging, slogging through mud. <laughs> and it's foggy and we can't see where we're going. And every just thing just feels on hold. Anybody feeling like that? Man, I am feeling like that. And yet we can take comfort in this. It's almost as Jesus turns to us and says, can you trust me right now? Can you trust me in this? Two delays. 
Two daughters. Two daughters. Jairus' daughter and then the bleeding woman. Let's, let's look at this woman first. Uh, first, we do, what's wrong with her? Well, when it says a discharge of blood, that's a very polite way of saying this is an unending menstrual flow for this woman. It's an unending condition. It meant not only was she sick and bleeding, unable to have children, she was also unclean according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. Now, we looked at this two years ago. We studied through, in the fall, the book of Leviticus, and we walked through the kosher laws about food and clean laws around diseases and people. And if you were there at the time, you'll remember this is one of the things I said over and over again, that wholeness, with a W in Leviticus, is connected to holiness with an H. See, all of Leviticus was given to God's people to communicate things about God's nature. It wasn't just arbitrary. It's meant to communicate things about who God is and how, what he wants to do in the lives of his people. And that he who is holy wants to make his people whole. And so the types of food that they ate had to fall into traits that were whole animals, not diminished in some way. I can walk you through that afterward if you want to talk. Uh, or or the, the laws with regard to diseases. A disease meant that a person, like with leprosy, there's something diminished about that person's body. They're not a whole person. And so because of that, that person was declared unclean, not as a, something mean to that person, but actually it's like performance art. It was meant to communicate something about God's character to his people. Now, the implications for this, though, for this woman are rough. You got to know that the implications for those are hard. 12 years. 12 years, she can't go into the temple. She's declared unclean, which means she can't touch people. She hasn't been hugged in 12 years. People avoid her. I mean, she's not even supposed to be in this crowd. She's incurable. We know from Luke's, Luke, who's a doctor, he, he described her condition as uncurable, that she spent all she had, and she'd got, it made her worse. The doctor's healings had made her worse. And she's poor, she's helpless, and it's, it sort of sets up this contrast between Jairus and this woman. You know, Jairus has a daughter who's, been, who's 12 years old. She's been sick for the whole time that girl's been alive. Jairus has a name that everybody knows in the village. We don't even know her name. Yet he's a ruler of the synagogue. She's probably not allowed in the synagogue. Definitely not allowed in the temple. He was well respected. She is rejected. And she comes up and it says she touches the fringe of his garment. Now, this is um, a, a rabbi, a, a Jewish man would have tassels, zizots, on the bottom fringe of his garment, which represented the law. And so she comes and pulls on one of those. If you uh, ladies have been wearing a dress before and someone steps on your dress, this is what this would have felt like. And Jesus immediately turns around and says, who touched me? Now, you've got to wonder what's going through her head. Oh, no. I've been called out. I've been discovered. Was, is he going to sh publicly shame me in this moment? Like, he's going to call attention to me. And she knows what that feels like to be 
kind of seen but rejected. And this comes the greatest moment in this passage, and really the central question of the whole Bible, which, which is this. What's it like to be exposed in all of your sin and shame in front of a holy God? And there's this incredible transaction that takes place. Jesus turns to her and says, daughter. This is the only person in the whole Bible, the only person in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus ever calls a daughter. This is a woman who's given no name, and Jesus names her with this term of intimacy and knowing and love and acceptance and grace. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what she must have been expecting. Jesus calls her out. And, you know, we see it in this picture, in this passage. We see what a daddy is supposed to do, right? Jairus is a good daddy. He, go, he runs to get and appeals on behalf of his daughter. He is so concerned for her. He gives up all his dignity. He's like, Jesus, you got to come help my little girl. I mean, he's a good daddy. And, and that's what a daddy is supposed to do. And we see in this passage, though, there are two daughters, Jairus and his little girl, and Jesus and this woman. You know, a lot of you here have daughters. More, many more of you are daughters. And, you know, I think the father-daughter relationship is one of the most powerful ones. It's, it has the power to set a woman on a trajectory in her life that's filled with confidence and with this sense of being seen and beautified, known and protected. Likewise, a wound in that relationship can be a really hard one that you never really get over. You know, I, I used to think uh, the whole Disney princess thing <laughs> was a dumb idea. I, uh, I only have boys, so I don't really have a whole lot of uh, experience with the Disney princess thing. But, I, you know, I thought, oh, this is setting up a generation of young women to, to have this outward view of beauty. It's, it's going to set them up. But, you know, the more I've thought about that in light of this passage, I think it's a wonderful thing because it's a statement of value to call your daughter a princess. It's a statement of incredible worth. This is who you are to me. I value you this much. You know, the late Kobe Bryant was a famous girl dad. There was an interview done with him a couple years ago where the, the interviewer was asking him about his daughters. And here's what the interview said. He said, I asked him advice on raising girls. He had three at the time. Kobe said, just be grateful you've been given that gift because girls are amazing. His third daughter, Bianca, was about a year and a half old at the time. So this is the interviewer. He said, I asked if he wanted more children. He said that his wife, Vanessa, really wanted to try again for a boy, but was sort of jokingly concerned that it would be yet another girl. The interviewer said, four girls? Are you joking? What would you think? How would you feel? Without hesitation, Kobe said this, I would have five more girls if I could. I'm a girl dad. You know, when Kobe died this year with one of his daughters, tragically. You know, the internet responded in this wave of honor for him, not so much about his basketball career, but with the hashtag girl dad. He set up his 
part of his life around being this kind of a father. And I think this woman comes to him, and she's trying to just to get away. And yet, the, the father of all fathers looks at her and says, daughter. This is a statement of incredible value. This is the, the, the unwanted one is prized and valued by the God of the universe. And if you have ever wrestled with like, does God really see me and know me and love me, the mess that I am? This is a passage for you to take great comfort in, in your weakness and your sense of yuck about who you are. Uh, this kind of grace, this kind of God seeing and calling you, and not just calling your name, but calling you his own. This is what's poured out for us in this passage. This is what we see over and over in the character of Jesus, this kind of compassion. You know, there's two kind of people who stay away from Jesus. Those who are prideful, who say, you know, I'm, I'm too good, I don't need this. And those who think, I'm totally unworthy. Jesus looks upon us, all of us, where we are, and says, daughter, son. This is the character of our God. You know, two delays, two daughters. Finally, two defilements. Probably, probably the most uh, shocking thing of this passage is what happens when she touches Jesus. This is not what's supposed to happen. The unclean one, by touching Jesus, is supposed to make him ceremonially unclean too. That's why she wasn't allowed to go into the synagogue, uh, the temple. This is why she wasn't allowed to be in crowds. This is why nobody could touch her, because contact with her makes another person unclean. You know, if, if I've got a cold <laughs> and I sneeze on you, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I got a cold. You probably got it now, and you get it. It doesn't mean that my cold goes away, unfortunately, or I would try that a lot, right? Uh, no, what it means is I've spread my cold to you. In the same way, contact with an unclean object, an unclean person, unclean foods in Leviticus made that person unclean. And yet, what do we see in this? Jesus, the clean one, the holy one of God, when she, the unclean, touches him, he isn't made unclean, but she, rather she is made clean. It, it, it goes the opposite way. It's not supposed to work this way. It goes the, the other direction. And this is because the ministry of Jesus over and over, that what we see throughout Scripture is Jesus' ministry is one of substitution. Me for you. He takes our uncleanness, all the ways that we are not whole, all the ways that we feel dirty and diminished and shamed and unvalued, unwashed and unworthy. He takes all of that and gives us his cleanness. You know, it's a regular occurrence talking to those who've been victims of abuse or those who are abusers. They feel dirty. We feel dirty. It's a common thing to be like, I need to take a shower. Even, even you watch a movie, you're like, oh, I feel, ugh. From what, I shouldn't have seen that. You know, there's something about washing on the outside that we're trying to do something. And Jesus shows us this is the only way that your soul gets clean is by contact with me, substitution with me. You know, the second defilement here, 
Jesus touches a dead body. That's a no-no as well. You're not supposed to touch the dead body, Jesus. Haven't you read Leviticus? Oh, yeah, you wrote it, right? But like he, uh, he touches the little girl. He takes her by the hand. He doesn't just go in and, hey, touches her by the hand, raises her up. See, Jesus came to reverse the curse, not like the Chicago Cubs, but like reverse all of death and defilement and decay. And in his first coming, he brings this to us on a spiritual level. In his second coming, he will do this with the entire universe. You know, what we see in this passage, even what he's done in the lives of so many of you, it's just a preview. It's the trailer for the full movie. This is the, the, the dawn before the fullness of day. This is what he's bringing to all of us. And you know, I want to invite you, if you are, uh, if you're like, I know lots of Jesus' things, but I haven't experienced his healing and transformation in his life. I want to invite you to give your life to him this morning. He is present with us. Uh, he is not, his arm is not too short to save. He is this gracious to sinners. I'm going to invite you to do that in a moment. But for you who are Christians, I want you to think about this. Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples by the way we love. You know, we live in a world with uniforms. There's all kinds of uniforms. You see a person wearing scrubs, and you know that's part of the medical community. You see a, a, someone wearing a clerical collar, you're like, that's a priest. You see uh, uh, somebody walking around your front yard in a, in a blue outfit carrying a bag. You're like, that's the male man or woman. You know, you, you see somebody in a red hat and a big coat, and you're like, that's a fireman. In the same way, the uniform for the people of God is supposed to be how we love. And yet, you know, I think we're not as good at loving as we often think we are. You know, we, we've bought into the Lake Wobegon effect. <laughs> we think we're all above average in this area. And yet I look on the compassion of Jesus and I'm like, man, I've got so much to learn about compassion. Don't you? What's this uniform look like? I just want to give you three applications of this this morning. What is your uniform, people of God, supposed to look like? What's our compassion that we put on supposed to look like? First, it looks like this, being interruptible. Being people who are delayable. Open to intrusions. You know, intrusions are probably one of the hardest things about being a parent of little kids. Anybody experienced that before? Like, constant interruption. You know, you can't go to the bathroom by yourself, right? That's, that's life with little children. Um, but this being interruptible is one of the qualities that defines, should define us as God's people, you know, if we're people who are ruled by our watches and our calendars, and there's no space, there's no margin for somebody who needs our help, a friend who needs compassion, a stranger who approaches us, and we're like, I'm too busy, I'm on my way always somewhere else, I can't help you right now, that's a problem. It shows that there's something off on the inside. We're not tracking with Jesus' compassion you know, are you interruptible? Are you delayable? Jesus gets first dibs. That's what it means to be, for him to be our Lord. He gets first dibs on my iCal, on my schedule, on my days off. 
He gets dibs on that. You know, Jesus will send you opportunities this week to love. Will you see them? Second application, love looks like, compassion looks like seeing people who are on the fringe, who are on the margins. You know, we don't know this woman's name, and I think that's really not surprising in this story. I bet a lot of people didn't know her name. I bet a lot of people in that town just knew her by her condition. She was that unclean woman. Do we see people who are on the fringe? You know, the reality is we see, if you just operate your normal life, going to the gas station, you're going to the grocery store, you see people all the time that you don't see. Now, what I mean by that is they're people who kind of pass out of the periphery because they're not that important. The New Testament writer James, really, he, he, he called out the church for a sin of partiality of having people that were worthy of our time and attention and people who weren't. He called the church there. Who are you seeing? Do you see? Do you see these people that are in front of you all the time? See, those who know the compassion of Jesus, this is part of our uniform, is seeing those on the fringe, learning names, engaging. And finally, love looks like going to the untouchables. You know, you get dirty when you love. Love is messy, Compassion requires something from you. It's going to hit your wallet and your schedule and you're worried, you know, your, your mental space. It's just going to be inconvenient. You know, are we people who are willing to go to the untouchables? Let me close with this. One of my favorite pictures of compassion in the past year in, in modern movies is, is from the, the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And it's sort of a fictionalized picture of the life of Mr. Rogers. Uh, Tom Hanks stars as Fred Rogers. And if you don't know who Fred Rogers is, he, he ran a, he did a kid's uh, show that was on all of my childhood from the 60s up to the 80s uh, that was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And, you know, in this, uh, in this movie, Fred Rogers is being approached for an interview by this name, by this guy named Lloyd Vogel. And Lloyd is famous as a journalist for his ability to kind of pick people apart in journalism. I mean, he is ruthless in finding the dirt in people's lives. And so his editor actually sends Lloyd to go interview Fred Rogers to kind of help Lloyd's reputation. Like maybe being around somebody who's kind will make you a better person. So it's interesting, the, the interaction between Fred Rogers and Lloyd Vogel, when Lloyd shows up to interview Fred Rogers, Fred Rogers doesn't seem actually all that interested in being interviewed. He's not really interested in the publicity. He doesn't care much about the story. Interestingly, he is more interested in knowing Lloyd. He wants to know him. He wants a friendship. And we get to know more about Lloyd throughout the movie. We realize that Lloyd has kind of a broken family. He goes to his sister's wedding. And there at the wedding, he encounters his dad, who's been estranged from the family. His dad abandoned them when they were kids. Uh, and Lloyd has all this anger. And so he actually gets into a fist fight with his dad at the reception of his sister's wedding and shows up for an interview with Fred Rogers with the shiner, the black eye. And, and Mr. Rogers is like, How'd you get that? 
Where did that come from? And he, he pursues until finally Lloyd is like, okay, finally, here, here's what, it's, what it is. And Rogers shows this incredible interest in Lloyd. Like, what's going on with you? And, and the, the, the kind of pivotal scene of this movie, <clears throat> find out that Lloyd's dad is dying. And Fred Rogers wants to go with Lloyd to go see his dad. Offers to go with him. And he goes into the, the bedside. And there's this exchange that happens. Lloyd is just still angry, still bitter. And I won't ruin all the scene for you. But he interacts with this father, Fred Rogers does, in a way that's filled with such compassion that it forces Lloyd to look at his dad really for the first time as a person. It forces him to see what for him has been an untouchable, what has been a man on the fringe and who's been unforgivable. And it kind of blows up his world. Brothers and sisters, this is what compassion does. Compassion changes the world. It flips relationships upside down. It transforms enemies into people who can be friends. It restores families. It restores us. Go and do likewise. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.